Hi, my name is Zach Osinski. I am a collaborator here on the Forefront Festival, and welcome to Forefront 360, a podcast where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. And today, it is my pleasure to sit down for a conversation with singer-songwriter Joy Ike. Now, if Joy's name is familiar to you, there's a good chance you've seen and heard her work before. She's been featured on NPR's All Songs Considered as a notable mention for the 2018 Tiny Desk Concert. She's also a collaborator with Porter's Gate Worship, which is a sacred music collective dedicated to creating new worship music to both reflect and impact the church and its community. For over a decade, Joy has cultivated a career as a singer-songwriter. Her most recent album was released in 2018. It's called Bigger Than Your Box, and it's been deeply impactful to me and many others. And I'm so glad to get to sit down with Joy for a conversation today. So, Joy, welcome to Forefront 360. Hey, Zach. Hey, world. (laughs) It's good to have you. Thanks. Looking forward to chatting. Yeah. So I have um, a silly but important question that I wanted to start out with. Um, so I heard in an interview that you are a fan of both Nora Jones and Sarah McLachlan. Mm-hmm. I'm also a fan of both of those women. So I just wanted to know, what do you admire at your work and how have they influenced you? Hmm. I really love, I love, uh, when I tell people my favorite type of music, I always say that folk is my favorite mm-hmm. uh, genre. And, and I think it's just because I love the simplicity of um, a good song uh, that's that's stripped down to just lyrics and vocals and hmm. one instrument, whether it be a guitar or piano. And I, I feel like Nora Jones and Sarah McLaughlin, they can hold down a show, a concert, a performance, a song with just that simplicity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I think about my college years and post-college years listening to their music, that's what I remember most. I remember just mm-hmm. the simplicity of... A, a well-written song that didn't need anything more than just them. And um, when I can listen to an artist and just listen to them in their simplest form, um, that's what, you know, that's what holds me, um, holds me for the long haul. Mm. Yeah. Is there any albums or songs of theirs in particular that, that have stuck with you? I'm really bad with song titles. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gosh, uh, that melody, uh, the, the lyrics for this one Sarah McLaughlin song goes like, spent all your time waiting, mm. dot, dot, dot. Yeah, mm. that, that one. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't, don't worry about the others. <laughs> as long as you know. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, um, could you take us through just kind of where do you trace your your musical roots to? Sure. Well, when I kind of share my performance background and really my just intro to music and my um, my story of music making, I always go back to my uh, you know probably probably was five years old at the time. My parents making us all take piano lessons, my siblings and I, and um, just loathing piano and piano lessons and and hating Mm -hmm. it, but um, feeling like I had to play and learn and take lessons um, because of the discipline of it and not for the love of it. 
And it wasn't until stepping away that I realized how much I loved making music and really not even um, so much playing piano, but um, I, I always tend to go back to songwriting when I'm talking about why I love music. Mm. Um, I just love a good lyric and I love how writers can weave words in, in different ways and talk about things that people have talked about for years. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I left the piano for about eight years between high school and college. When I picked it back up, I, I think it was probably out of frustration of really wanting to uh, find ways to articulate things that were kind of stuck inside me, um, mm-hmm. but also needing the tool of being able to make melodies in order to do that. And um, so my, uh, the last 15 years of music making has been full of a lot of frustration um, of wanting to be a better musician, but never, never really getting music. And that sounds silly Mm. to say it as someone who makes music, um, but never really understanding um, music theory, um, the, the nuances of what goes into like the engineering of a, of a good song. Hmm. Um, but everything for me kind of revolves around feeling and rhythm. Hmm. And um, I would probably also credit my Nigerian background for that. Everything is about rhythm. Everything is about movement. Um, And so I think what um, has really helped me to make music is understanding dynamics and understanding the push and pull of a song and Hmm. um, the push and pull of even phrasing and how you say words and how words um, tend to stick better. Um, And, tend to land better when you're with how you're saying it and when you're saying it and how that parallels the music that you're playing along with those words. Hmm. Um, so I've kind of taken a really informal, non-traditional path um, in my songwriting life. And um, it's been an interesting one, full of frustration, but I think also full of thinking outside the box, um, probably out of necessity. Hmm. But um, it's it's uh, I think it's, it's uh, resulted in uh, songs that wouldn't have been created other if I had come from a different background or mm. um, had a different um, understanding of music. Sure, yeah. When you were first delving into into songwriting, did you have any kind of like vocational aspirations to it, or was it more more of just a emotional creative outlet for you at that point in life? Yeah, it was just a creative outlet. Um, I still, every few months, I'm just like, wow, I can't believe I'm doing this. Like, this doesn't make sense. Not only am I an introvert and don't like being around people, um, I'm I'm loving this quarantine for that reason. Uh Um, (laughs) I mean, yeah, for, you know, there's there's much to talk about in regards to that. And it's not all wonderful, obviously. But um, I I don't necessarily need to be on stage. or in front of people. And um, the hermit in me, you know, has always pushed back against music making. Um, Mm. Has always uh, tried to convince myself that I should be doing something else. Mm. Um, And I think there's a time and season for everything. Mm. But it's weird. uh, It's weird to me kind of thinking about the trajectory of of all of this and thinking about um, the times when I wanted to throw in the towel um, out of frustration and out of really not knowing what the the path ahead uh, looked like. Um, and But then at, at a certain point, there's an album I put out, I think this is probably seven years ago now, called All or Nothing. There was this point where I had to make a decision. And that 
title and the songs on that album work directly in response to commitment. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there are love songs on the album that talk about commitment, but there was also like a reckoning where I had to make the decision, okay, do I really want to keep doing this? Am I committed to this? And um, is it something that I can see myself doing for the long haul? And if so, what is my purpose in making this music? And mm-hmm. uh, what is my hope for it? Um, what, what basically what's my game plan and and why do I, why do I still care about this? And do I still care about this? So, um, music making for me, I think like anything that requires commitment is really the coming back to the, um, coming back to, uh, you know, the ground zeros, um, when things aren't going great and asking yourself, do I still care enough to keep doing it? Mm. And, uh, I've had to ask myself that over and over and over again, And, um, I do. And, and, and for me, it it started with trying to get things out and not knowing how else to do it except through music. And, uh, and that's still the same, um, it's still the same story 15 years later. It's like, I, I only write when I have something to say. Uh, I, I wish I was a more prolific writer who was pumping out a song every week. Um, but that just doesn't happen. So I, I think on, any given in any given year, I probably will average maybe three, four songs at the most. But mm. it really takes a while for a, a song to sit and simmer and cook, and really for one uh, idea to build upon another in order for the song to finally get to where it needs to be and, and be what it wants to be. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting because when, when I think about about the word discipline and commitment to a craft like like music making. I'm thinking of it from the the world of classical music where it's pretty easy to just say, well, go practice your scales, go practice your long tones mm-hmm. every day. Um, could you speak a little to just what, what discipline looks like as a, as a singer songwriter and for when you're at that moment of reckoning in, in your life, was there points of conflicts in like what commitment looked like? And if so, how did you reconcile that? Uh, I love that question. Yeah. Wow. And I think it's, it's almost like every few years there's a reset button where I have to reevaluate and figure out, okay, what worked before and might still work or what worked before, but what don't I want to continue doing? Like, what do, what do I want to change in order to move forward and not be stuck in last year or two years or in the same cycle of the last album or whatever that might be. And um, I think there is um there's a constant, um, there's like a constant like reevaluating of what um, what the focuses need to be and what the disciplines need to be in support of that focus. And so, um, I can speak to the last uh, two years, for example. You know, when Bigger Than Your Box came out, I had this whole idea mapped out that this was like the album of my career, quote unquote. And and I still feel like that's it's it's my favorite album, and I feel like it represents me better than anything I've ever put out. And so I had this huge game plan of being on the road for at least a year, year and a half straight and pushing the album and, and touring as much as possible um, until that, that project was heard by every ear that had never heard of me before, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I don't, I, I can't, I can't really explain how I knew. And I'm sure it was just God and his, um, very clever and creative ways uh, telling me to put the brakes on. After I put that album out, it was just like, okay, you are raw and you're dry and you have nothing left to give. And even though you just put this project out, 
you need to stop because if you don't, you're going to hate this <laughs> more mm -hmm. than the times that you love it. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I literally had to um, take a few steps back and the album came out in April. My last tour was in July. And for the last two years, uh, my calendar is, I'm, I'm probably playing out maybe 20 or 30% as much as I used to maybe maybe 40 percent maybe it depends on the month too um but uh, i i think rest uh it was necessary for rest to be the focus because i was kind of pulling uh, drawing from an empty well and um and I, I think god and his uh god and his in his mercy and grace was like wow you you have a project here and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of richness in what you're trying to um, share and give to people, but you can't give what you don't have. And in order for this album to make the impact that it needs to make, you need to um, you need to be pulling from from a source other than yourself because you're empty and you're dry and you don't have anything left to give. Um, and it's been it's been amazing just to watch and see how through this. Um, prolonged even longer than I had hoped um, just because of how this year has gone because of this prolonged season of rest uh, see how uh, see the impact that the album has made um, see the, the doors that have opened and see um, how things have um, moved um, with really me kind of taking my hands off it and, and um, not trying so hard to uh, manufacture you know amazing moments or these amazing opportunities that might have taken me down a path that I wasn't supposed to go and have now because those things are not there. They've left room and open doors for um, things and places that um, I want to be places where I want to be. So, yeah, I think that's, um, you know, going back to your question about disciplines for me, the discipline of, of rest has been the focus of these last two years. Um, and I think as artists, we don't really do that well because we can't uh, leave our work at the office. We, uh -huh. we live and we create in the same space. And so where our minds are always moving, even if our hands aren't, or even if, um, you know, even if, uh, even if our hands aren't. And so it's, that's really been the focus of these last few years. And so every few years I kind of have to recalibrate and think about what that focus is for bigger than your box before, as I was writing that album, um, going to my piano every day was something that I made myself do. And, and I think, uh, you know, you shared that you are in the classical music world. I think for a classical musician, that's, that's just like a no brainer. That's what you do. Um, but for, for me, that's a hard thing, um, because I don't in, enjoy that process all the time, um, unless I have one specific thing I'm working on and trying to, uh, trying to finish. And so the idea of going to my piano, even if there's nothing on the plate, even if there's nothing that I'm working on just for the, just for, um, the discipline of doing it, um, and just showing up, um, that was something that was really hard to cultivate, but I knew it was important um, in order to birth all the things that were kind of like stuck inside of me that needed words. Sure. Yeah. I love how you illustrated both work and rest as discipline in themselves. And I, I'm kind of taken by how, how counterintuitive it is for us to know that rest is an integral part especially as as artists that rest is an integral part of the creative process i mean we can even see it in nature like in illinois i'm surrounded by 
cornfields and soybean fields and you know all of these all of these crops have their seasons in which they're flourishing and they're growing but then they need to be harvested and the land needs to be tilled and it needs to rest and it needs rain and yeah yeah uh, yeah it's crazy to me i just started gardening this summer for the first time and i'm just thinking of, i mean i'm always thinking about things in uh with that nature and you know plants and all that stuff as a metaphor um but i think a lot about pruning late uh in this past year <laughs> mm-hmm. all the pruning that needs uh needs to be done not really in our careers but in ourselves in order for us to um become who we're supposed to be mm. and um I am someone that, so I've really come to love rest. It's not something that I I have ever really loved until now because I don't always, you know, as artists, we're always thinking three to six months out. You know, we're always planning everything in advance. And I also think just my personality is that I, I like to always think a few steps ahead. So even in moments of rest, it's hard for me to really stop because I'm still thinking of, okay, what do I need to do later on today? Or what do I need to do later on this week so that I can actually rest in my weekend? So it's like the brain's always working and there's, um, there's something that's always going on. And I'm, I'm finding that it's when I really stop that, you know, when that, you know, when that Sabbath Sunday or Sabbath season is over that the, the, produce for lack of a better word is is so much um so much more beautiful it's more ripe um and i might even use the word organic in the sense so like it's like everything just comes out more naturally i'm giving this workshop in a few weeks with art house north and um i had some family in town for about five weeks and i needed to send them the workshop title and i needed to send them uh, the description. And I, I couldn't, like, I just literally couldn't focus because I had so many things I had to take care of with family in town. And I ended up uh, having this uh, week yeah. to finally catch up with myself. And I knew I owed them the description like a week beforehand, but I knew that if I didn't give myself three full days to really just sit and recover from five weeks of family roaming in my tiny apartment, that I wouldn't yeah. be able to give anything that had, was a quality. And so I kind of forced myself to just stop and not think about it in order, in order to be able to, you know, create something and generate something that had some worth when I did have time to really think about it critically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think about, I don't know if it's first Kings or second Kings. I think it's one of those two books, but I think about like Elijah when he from like raining fire down from the heavens <laughs> and mm-hmm. then he goes out to the wilderness and he's just, he's empty in his prayers, something like that. God, you might as well take me now because I just have nothing left. And I just wrote about that yesterday, the irony of that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, like God sends an angel to him and gives him water and bakes bread for him (laughs) in the middle of Mm -hmm. the wilderness. Wow. Yeah. Well, could you, um, so you talk about growing up in a Nigerian household and how the, the culture of that shaped, shaped your work as a musician. But could you talk about what was the the role of faith in your upbringing? Like, what was that like? Yeah. So I grew up in a very devoutly Christian home and uh, my two social outlets growing up were school and church. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I would say I'm of the DC talk generation 
okay. where <laughs> DC Talk, Michael W. Smith, Grits, mm-hmm. MXPX, you know, like all the youth group music. <laughs> uh, um, but be, because of that, and because of that, I didn't really have any real world um, experience or knowledge um, until after college, not even in college, because I commuted all four years. Um, and, and I think it was really because of uh, what I call or what I consider the Christian bubble that I grew up in. Um, I wasn't there. There weren't a lot of things I was allowed to do or places that I was allowed to be. Um, mm. So I think I grew up with a, um, a deep sense of fear for the unknown um, mm. fear of the unknown um, and not knowing how to um, navigate the world. Uh, which is probably also why I ended up living at home all through college and why that um, this idea of fear um, works its way as a major theme um, Mm -hmm. through a lot of my music and especially bigger than your box. Mm -hmm. Um, And so my Christian background has been the very foundation of, you know, what I do, how I write, um, how I operate even now. Um, But I realized that I don't even know, must've been my late, my late twenties where I started to realize that um, the story of the gospel is a story of freedom a story of Mm. uh, knowing who you are in Christ um, and not living in fear. Um, That message is all through the word. And, um, but that's not the message that I grew up hearing. Um, I spent so much of my uh, youth believing, you know, the whole us first them, them idea of, you know, you kind of need to keep your distance from people in order to maintain um, your goodness uh, or your holiness um, without realizing that transformation um, happens inward and then pours out. And so who you are is not, um, is not determined um, by who you hang out with, but your identity in Christ. And whenever you know who you are in Christ, that instead oozes out to the people that you spend your time with. Um, and that's what kingdom work really is. And, and that's, for me, the call of music making, the call of sharing who Christ, what Christ has grown in me, who Christ is to me, um, mm-hmm. and taking that out into the world wherever I go. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that if, if there's anything I can say I knew as, as a beginning singer-songwriter, I, I knew that my call wasn't to make music um, for the church or specifically for the church. Hmm. Um, and, and that was a, a, a hard, uh, a hard ground for me to, to really understand and navigate for a while because hmm. I knew, um, I knew what my beliefs were and I knew that I wanted to make, um, biblical truths accessible to people who weren't part of the church, um, but who still hungered for truth and who hungered for, hmm. um, realness and rawness. And um, I think now if there's anything that I know, it's that um, when you uh, when you share the truth with people, when you are transparent with people, when you are authentic with people, um, they listen, Um, even Mm. if they don't agree with you, it's totally fine, but they do lend an ear. And so my hope um, is always as a music maker to make space um, to share the truth and um, to honor the ears that people have have lent uh, lent to me. Mm. Wow. That is so beautiful. <laughs> um, you know, one, one of the significant features of, of your music that I observed, the, the word that always comes to my mind is, is resilience. Mm-hmm. And 
I find that to be very contagious when I'm when I'm listening to your work. And so to hear you talk about how one of these core uh, I don't want to call it baggage, but that that fear has been such a significant part of of your walk and of your just of your process, both as a believer and as a musician to hear it kind of become the grounds for the truth of, of the freedom that you have in Christ as his beloved child. Um, I think that in itself is a remarkable testimony. Mm. Thank you. I, I think like, man, you always hear that cliche that saying that, you know, the things, the things that, uh, are your weaknesses are also your strengths or the things, the trials that you've kind of endured or the things that ultimately are the, are the ways and the things that you can offer to other people to help them pull through the same things. And I've always believed that, but I think uh, as I, in these past uh, several years, especially as I kind of look back on these last 15 years, it's been so apparent, um, you know, the full circle nature of um, what I've, what I've been doing with music and how I've grown through it and how the songs are really, I guess my story of growth, but at the same time, um, they're not just my story. It's just the human story of what does it take to uh, be resilient? What does it take to keep on pushing, to not give up um, and to always have hope. And I think it's, it's weird, but it's even in this year of all of the ups and downs of quarantine and everything in the pandemic, that story has become even stronger um, as I share songs on live streams. And I realize that this is exactly the message for the time, you know, resilience yeah. and hope in the, in the midst of doubt and especially in the midst of fear. Sure. Yeah. It's something I've been thinking a lot about during this season. So the, the author Steve Garber talks about vocation the vocation itself being something that's sacramental in that vocation is a place where God's kingdom and his goodness and his love for creation touches earth and it touches us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wonder if you have any thoughts on the vocation of the arts in a time where everywhere we look, it kind of feels like the arts, I mean, everything, but specifically like the performing arts are just put on hold where a lot of, you know, you talk about looking as artists, looking three to six months out constantly in all of our work. Um, and it's kind of like the performing arts were the first thing to go and the last thing to, to come back. So can you talk about or share anything about the vocation of being an artist in a season like ours right now? Yeah, uh, I love that question. I, man, uh, anytime I've ever talked on vocation, um, especially with college students who are kind of in that place where they're trying to figure out what they're doing, what they want to do and what to study and how to move forward once they graduate. I always share about vocation being this place where what what you love to do and what people need meet. Mm-hmm. And so you're not just um, doing something that um, serves yourself. And by that, I mean, you know, helps you pay rent, helps you, you know, pay the bills and take care of yourself, but 
also helps you serve others. So you're providing your own needs, but you're providing other people's needs. I think that's Mm -hmm. just a beautiful marriage when you're able to do those two things and and put them together. Now that doesn't always happen. Some people are, are doing what they're called to do and pursuing their vocation, but maybe working a job elsewhere to provide um, for their day-to-day needs. But all that to say, um, I think that vocation doesn't, uh, if, if you're, if there is no uh, space to be serving others, then it can't be considered vocation, mm. because there's a um, there's a serving nature, and you know I can't, I can't necessarily prove this, but you know maybe you can, maybe I just haven't done the work yet, <laughs> but I just feel like um, I just feel like vocation doesn't happen unless someone other than yourself is being served, mm. um, because it's sacrificial. Um, and even a, even Christ, his very life was sacrificial, even though the, the disciples should have been serving him. He demonstrated to them what it looked like to be a servant. And that's how he li- lived his life. Um, I just finished watching the Chosen series. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I highly recommend it. But it's 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 pretty cool to see how the directors um, put that uh, demonstrate that visually in the produ- in the in the production. And so. I think in this in this specific time, um, when I think about the fact that I can't play out um, and there there isn't an audience, quote unquote, um, music for me has um, never felt as missional as it does right now, because mm. um, I think that people are realizing how much they love the arts, not for entertainment, but engagement, um, engagement with the arts, but also engagement with their own hearts. Um, and, and I've really spent maybe the last two years now, especially in this season of rest, um, thinking of uh, music as engagement and music as therapy. And uh, seeing people this whole spring and really this whole 2020 crave music because they don't know how to deal with all the emotions that are, you know, going and roaring inside, but they need an outlet and they need someone to put those feelings to words um, on my live streams. Uh, it's, it's been really cool to see people's comments and also emails they've sent about how much the music has meant to them in this season uh, more than any other season. And also um, I firmly believe that context changes everything in a song that you um, have heard a million times can take on a whole new, even deeper meaning depending on what you're going through. And, and so I feel like based on the responses that people have been sending that the arts are um, fully alive and well, um, they're just not, um, they're just not as public. And, um, and it's funny cause I, I feel the same about the church and maybe those two things are one in the same in some kind of way. Um, mm. When we think about what we're doing as ministry and as missional, um, it gives whole new meaning to um, what we can do and how, how we can serve um, our audiences and really minister to them in this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just sitting with what you just said. Um, I like seeing the wheels turning in your head. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, is he thinking? <laughs> but that's great. I mean, and I think it makes sense that there wouldn't be just like one kind of across the board answer for for what vocation kind of looks like for for the artist right now um 
that idea that the value and the need for, for the arts, how that becomes so starkly illuminated right now against the, the darkness that we kind of see and experience in ourselves and in the world right now. Um, yeah, it's so true. And, uh, you know, as someone who is a self-proclaimed hermit, I, um, I'm in my apartment a lot and I, I, this is so, this is so silly and cheesy, but I find that I feel so much more joy when I just look at one of my plants, <laughs> you know, or look at some piece of art that's on the wall and, yeah. and I don't know what it is, but I get a lot of joy from rearranging things. So, you know, whatever's here today, mm-hmm. it's not going to be there tomorrow. It's going to be over, over there instead. But there's something about that that makes me really happy uh, and just brings this, uh, I don't know, I don't know. Just it just does something for me, and I think that's what art and music does for a lot of people. Um, mm. Just kind of brings peace and, and joy. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, speaking of fruits of the spirit, I just I was just starting thinking like the the peace, joy, patience, kindness, even the the creating of art. You know, uh, mm. I, I love crafting. So sitting at your table and, and working on something, you know, that takes a lot of patience. You can't create. Um, something that takes that it, when, when it takes time and the patience that it cultivates in you, it, it, there's a beauty in that too. And there's a joy in that in, in seeing the work of your hands. And so mm. I'm sure there's a whole, whole lesson out there about <laughs> fruits of the spirits to the arts. <laughs> like the, the ingredient of time and yeah. Someone pointed out to me recently about, the, the significance of the elements of communion that they're bread and wine and how they're, it's not grain and grapes, it's bread and wine. And neither of those things are done in a hurry. Mm, wow. That's good. Uh, yeah. I like that. And, it, you know, going back to the whole, uh, all the plant metaphors, I feel like we could probably cultivate all of the fruits of the spirit through uh, gardening. Mm-hmm. Just probably so especially the long suffering like we're still waiting for our tomatoes to get ripe my friend and i in our in our plot and i'm just like i'm ready (laughs) (laughs) yeah well speaking of the arts in this moment and endurance and waiting um could you walk us through the story of of your song walk hmm yeah. Hmm. Where to start with that? So there is an organization in DC called Bread for the World. Um, some people listening to this may have heard of Bread, and they do a lot of advocacy work um, that uh, affects the policies that are made in DC that ultimately affect how NGOs work and operate in other countries. Um, specifically and especially third world countries. And so several years back, they were doing a campaign and they wanted uh, some music to pair with the campaign and just promoting uh, promoting it and sharing about what they were doing at that time. And, and so they reached out to a handful of artists um, wanting to put out a compilation album um, that came out with the campaign. Um, and so, you know, the idea was, uh, you know, write a song, something that's, you know, justice specific that really addresses this um, 
this idea of dealing with injustice. Um, it didn't have to be specifically about hunger, but that was kind of the main focus. And so I started writing Walk and I worked on it for a few months. Um, again, songs are really slow for me, but I kept, I felt like I kept forcing it. You know, I might work on it for a few days, let it, let it sit for a bit and then come back over and over again. It just wasn't happening. And so I ended up tabling it and I ended up um, ultimately not being part of the campaign because um, it just wasn't right. And so two years later, I, you know, the world's exploding um, as it, as it always has. And <laughs> even more so now. And I, I, yeah, I can't remember what, Oh, it was for Ferguson. So this is 2014, I think. Yeah. And and so this was 2012 when they reached out to me, but 2014 and so much was happening in the world. And uh, I remembered the song and, and uh, kind of dusted it off, pulled it out. And really between, between when they first reached out to me in that time, you know, the girls uh, in Nigeria, the uh, Boko Haram had abducted the 300 girls in Nigeria. Um, mm-hmm. and we were hearing about ISIS in the news all the time at this point. Mm-hmm. And then Ferguson happened. Yes. And I think it was even still several months later, you know, you were seeing the protests and riots and different things like that. And the song just popped in my head and I was like, wow, I need to finish this. And I finally have the fuel for the fire. And so I mm-hmm. pulled it back out um, and the song just flowed, just came out so easily. And um, it's hard for me to even believe that that song is is six years old now. But um, I was just sharing with someone yesterday about how it feels even more relevant now than mm-hmm. it did back when I wrote it. Um, and at the heart of at, at the heart of uh, at the heart of walk is really just um, the question. You know, what do we do with all of this? all of this frustration and all of these feelings of, well, I can't affect change because anything I do is really a drop in the bucket. Like what do we do with that feeling and that frustration and how do we affect change in our immediate surrounding and with, in our immediate sphere of influence with the people that we know, with the people that we see and what are the things that we can tangibly do in our own life um, in order to affect change instead of being overwhelmed by the weights of the world and feeling like we can't do anything. And yes. so walk was really just a response to what does it li- look like to act justly, love mercy and walk humbly? Like, what does that really look like when we um, take all the shine off of it and just, you know, get our hands dirty and roll up our sleeves? Yeah. And, you know, I think that's, the message of act justly, love mercy, walk humbly, that message, especially right now, in one sense, it's it's both an encouragement and a relief in the sense that, you know, in, in our kind of cultural moment where we're so, we're so plugged in and there's so much noise kind of coming at all of our senses all the time, mm-hmm. um, it almost kind of takes the the pressure off because it feels like I feel like when I open up Facebook or whatever, it feels like there there are these big mammoth problems, injustices, mm-hmm. what have you, in the world, and it feels like I kind of need to like take my like pickaxe and start picking away at it, but nothing. <laughs> not, it feels like this problem so big that it's not going to 
solve anything, whether it be COVID or racial injustice or, or what have you. Um, yeah. Yeah. So true. I, I feel like, you know, the, the, the act justly love mercy walk humbly. It's like a triad, you know, and you can't uh, have one without the other and especially humility. You can't really uh, act justly and love mercy without humility. Or if you don't have the humility part of the equation, then, you know, you can say all you want as eloquently as you want, like in First Corinthians, but it falls flat, you know, because if you have not love, you're just like a resounding mm-hmm. gong. And so mm-hmm. um, I feel like that piece is missing so much right now in the public discourse that everything is falling flat. Mm-hmm. Well, and I wonder too how how it would look if, I mean, you mentioned earlier about how how this frame of mind shapes our immediate surroundings. And um, I thought about like, what would it look like if we all, instead of trying to look at this big monster of a, whatever we feel passionate or concerned about and looking, I mean, I thought about that a lot with, you know, all of the, the visibility on racial injustice in in our country and in our culture and, it feels overwhelming to try and attack all of it at once. And I've thought about like, you know, what, what would it look like just to commit to making a difference in my own community, my own neighborhood. Um, and that's mm-hmm. thing that I observe that I observe in, in your work, whether you're making music or you're speaking or you're sharing your thoughts on Instagram, it's just this, this importance of being a steward of our communities and, and caring intentionally for, for our neighbors. And I almost mm. wonder if we're, if we're just as humans naturally more readily equipped to do that than, I don't know. I'm thinking out loud, but. Yeah, <laughs> no, I love it. I mean, I think it really, it comes down to that. It just has to come down to that. You know, the church was local, it was always local. And, and, you know, speaking of the season we're in now, the church was always, you know, the church started off um, in homes. And so that's such a beautiful picture, uh, thinking of the small unit, uh, the small unit model for a church uh, and what it looks like to come together, to eat a meal together, and then also check in with everyone who's present to see what are the actual needs in our community. Um, and like, what if the church mm-hmm. kept operating like that, where everything we did was focused on small units instead of trying to grow these big things um, that, you know, no, no one can really keep track of well, because people always get lost in the shuffle when things get too big. Um, right. And so I just love that model of 12 people, you know, disciples, 12 people max. And, you know, no one gets lost in the shuffle when it's a small group right. or no one has to. Right. Yeah, and we could talk about this for days. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I could go for days. I'm like, <laughs> uh, well, um, one last question for you. Um, if you had an encouragement and or a challenge for Christians in the arts, what would it be? Hmm. Gosh. I think I would just, uh, I I think I would say that hope never gets old. Mm. Um, When you're making 
music or when you're creating something visually or, or dancing, whatever it is you're doing, um, hope is contagious and it never gets old. Um, especially in the times we live in right now, um, there's such a need for it. Um, and there's such a need for something more, something greater. And um, I think people are more aware of that now, now more than ever. Mm. Um, so for artists who are creating and trying to um, figure out um, not only how they want to make a mark in the world, um, but how, who they want to be as artists. Um, I just think you can't go wrong when you're, um, when you're spreading hope um, and you're countering the divisive um, nature of, of our, our human nature, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. that's our natural tendency to want to do that. And so um, I think our, our listeners now more than ever, uh, our viewers now more than ever need, uh, want hope. And um, it's just a message that will never, um, will never lose its value or its worth or its impact. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Joy, I'm sorry that we have to end the conversation, but um, it was so good. <laughs> oh, yeah, this was such a treat. <laughs> Thanks for your amazing questions. Oh, <laughs> very kind. Um, so, Joy, where where can we find where can we find your work? Where can we get in touch with you? Um, I like to send people uh, to my website, joyike.com. Um, on social media, Facebook, Instagram is my favorite, YouTube, all of those. Um, but joyike.com is just the one-stop shop and you can find everything else through that. Excellent. Now, listeners, if you would like to see Joy perform, you can take heart because on Friday, August 7th, Forefront is hosting its first ever live virtual festival event. Uh, this will be a two-hour event featuring a guest keynote speaker, breakout sessions, which are host, which are going to be hosted by uh, guest artists of all different mediums. Uh, and for our closing performance, we will be hosting the one and only Joy Ike. Um, Yay! <laughs> we're really looking forward to it, and uh, it's going to be a great event. Uh, to learn more, you can visit forefrontfestival.com/virtual2020. That's virtual two zero two zero to register and get your ticket. There's a suggested donation of ten dollars, but tickets are free, so we would love to have you. Um, so, from everyone here at Forefront, um, thanks so much for listening. Keep pursuing excellent art and authentic faith. <laughs> <laughs>